look at the way that we depict the gods in the DC comics or the Marvel series, Thor, Black Panther, Superman, they're invincible. This is what we expect when God comes. That's what we're expecting is Thor to show up. But what happens? He's a Jew who's keeping the law and it ends up with a bloody, violent death to as take a, away the sin of the world. Seriously? At what point is he going to throw down his hammer? And he gets hammered on yeah. the cross. I'm Chris Crawford and I live in Dallas. I was born and raised in the Wesleyan Holiness Movement, the Nazarene denomination. And then I started investigating this website called The White Horse Inn. And really what it's meant to my life, it's just changed my life because I didn't know what I believed or why I believed it. And I'd just fallen prey to the cultural Christianity that I was raised in and had a lot of consumeristic Christian ideas in there. And, and what White Horse Inn has is, is given me the foundation, the rock of Christ that I needed. And the navel-gazing personality that I had is now trying to look up and away to Christ and what he's done, his finished work, and then just to get busy at my job loving on my neighbor. So many facets of my life has changed, not to mention just having to take all of the pressure off of me. Help support the work of the White Horse Inn by making a one-time donation or by becoming a regular monthly donor. Simply head to whitehorseinn.org and click on the Donate tab on the upper right-hand corner. That's whitehorseinn.org. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. In his opening chapter to his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
and we're uh, discussing the centrality of and power of the ministry of word and sacrament established by our Lord through his apostles. And in this program, we're focusing on the foolishness of the gospel, both the content and the means in the eyes of the world. To discuss this, John Bombaro, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in San Diego, California. Adriel Sanchez, the pastor of North Park Presbyterian Church, also in San Diego. And Sam Albury is joining us. Sam is ordained in the Church of England and is a visiting professor at Cedarville University. Sam, it's great to have you back. Thank you. And I'm Mike Horton. I uh, impersonate a professor at Westminster Seminary, California. First of all, brothers, Paul calls the message of the gospel foolishness to Greeks. Why does he call the content of his preaching foolishness? Well, I think for at least two reasons. One, you think about what the cross signified in that world. I mean, this was the height of shame. There's no punishment that's more shameful, more cruel. And so to have a religion centered around the cross. Electric chair. Yeah, the electric chair. That was extremely foolish. But but even more so, I think what was what was more troubling to the to the Greeks was the idea that God, the omnipotent God, was the one who hung on the cross. There's a, a quote that I wanted to share from a guy named Arnobius of Sicca. Listen to what he says. This is him. This is what the pagans uh, said about the Christians. The gods are not hostile to you because you worship the omnipotent God, but because you maintain that a God born of a human being and one who suffered the penalty of crucifixion, which even to the lowest of men is a disgraceful punishment, was God. So there was a temptation for the early believers to jettison the doctrine of the deity of Christ because to say that God suffered on a cross, Mm. nothing could be more foolish. To say that he became flesh was the first mistake. Yeah. But then to say that he became flesh and died on a cross. Wow. And what also makes it foolishness to the Greek is that it's, it's actually laughable to say that this one is the Lord because it looks like Caesar their God has mm. all authority in heaven and earth, and he's exercised his greatest power, which is the power of death, upon the one that you were calling Messiah. Yeah, watch the pageantry of a Roman division walking through a triumphal arch. Now that's power. But this, seriously? A Jewish rabbi hanging on a cross? That can't be the power of God. How can you say this is victory when we've already labeled it a defeat, you know, yeah. he was not only executed, he was condemned. Yeah. And now you're saying that this one is the Lord of life. And also, when you, when you think about what the Stoics and Epicureans and other schools of the day, philosophers of the day were into, they were, as Luke tells us, debating the latest ideas. What ideas? Well, basically the good life. Everything focused on how can you use virtue as a means to the end of being happy. In other words, your best life now. I mean, it was all about how you can be happy. And here comes Paul saying, it's not about happiness. You may be happy. I don't know. You may not be happy. It's not about happiness. It's about this Jewish rabbi who was crucified not that long ago outside the center city of Jerusalem. Let me tell you about him. It, it runs in the opposite direction of everything we, we naturally think and pursue. Whatever scale we're looking at, the death of Jesus is at the wrong end of it. It's not impressive, it's not attractive, it's not sophisticated, uh, it doesn't entertain us, it doesn't flatter us, it doesn't amuse us. 
So everything about it goes against the grain of, of what we are naturally about and naturally seeking in life. So it, it contradicts every aspect of our thinking and our wisdom. We're so like the Greeks, aren't we? Religion is about power. And the one thing left for religion in people's lives, it seems, it gives me, it empowers me, people say. It gives me empowerment for life. And basically, the gospel comes along and says, you're powerless. Well, the gospel doesn't say that, but the law does. The law comes and says, there's nothing actually that you can do to be a better you. <laughs> and you can do all sorts of things to improve your habits and your diet and exercise, but you can't make yourself new. And here we're presenting a message to you where basically all of the power in the universe is concentrated upon casting yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, trusting in his violent death and glorious resurrection as your only hope. Furthering Sam's thought, he's absolutely right. By our natural eyes, the cross is ugly. It's ugly, it's awful, it's horrible, and then more than that, it's, it's repugnant and repellent. It drives us away from it, which is why it requires the work of the Holy Spirit, not marketing mediums and you know self-willing, but it requires the work of the Holy Spirit to take something that is so absolutely awful as a crucifixion and what looks to be an ignominious defeat and turn it into a victory, turn it into something beautiful so that today you'll find people adorning themselves with the cross in terms of jewelry or beautifying a space with the crucifixion. How is that even possible mm -hmm. unless God gives us new light to see what looks like foolishness of the spectacular defeat into actually the great victory of God? If the world powers had known what God was up to, they never would have done it. But nobody knew. Satan didn't know. The powers and principalities didn't know. Caesar didn't know. The philosophers didn't know. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel didn't know. Nobody knew. When nobody was looking, God did the wisest thing and the most powerful thing that we've ever seen in the history of his actions, including the parting of the Red Sea. This was the greatest miracle that ever happened in history, right at the very moment where all the world could see was defeat. God was most evidently, most evidently victorious over sin and death. And is part of this, we don't really believe those are our enemies. Our enemies are loneliness, hmm. alienation, Income bracket. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a great point because it shows us where the sphere of the victory is. If you're expecting Jesus to bring in this kingdom that's going to fix my loneliness and you don't see that, well, then the cross looks like a great defeat. But if you realize that through the cross, Jesus triumphed over the powers and principalities, mm -hmm. if you're looking at that playing field, then you realize how glorious the cross is. And then, it, then maybe that will affect your loneliness too, especially if it draws you to a communion of saints. Yeah. Well, I think the things we typically look to God for today, we, we look for a sense of meaning, a sense of wholeness, a sense of power or stature or, or affirmation. To find all of those things, we've, we've got to look somewhere where there's more of that than we have in ourselves. And what the cross gives us is less than that. On all of those things, we, Jesus is without, without them entirely. He has no power. He has no wealth. He has no stature. He's not whole. He's torn to pieces 
So again, it, it's the last place we would look because we're not looking for the right thing. Mm. Um, I'm living in the States at the moment. I'm, I'm having to reckon with driving on your side of the road. <laughs> and so every single time I'm getting in a car, all of my intuitions are wrong. Every single one of them. Mm. And I've got to keep moment by moment going against my intuitions and correcting them because I'm, I'm driving on this side of the road now. Mm. And it's the same in the Christian life. All of my intuitions are still, my default settings are still so worldly rather than having in mind the things of God. And it's that the gospel just, it's always going to be counterintuitive to us. Mm. It's I think especially in the United States, you know, we think what leadership and power are in America and how people in secular power look to religionists who are prosperity gospel evangelists people who have made it people who are similarly healthy and beautiful and have jets <laughs> and you know they're the people who are spiritual advisors to the white house it's all about power it's all about imitating that which we think is powerful and then packaging that and selling that to the world as what the gospel will give you and here the the gospel's actually a beat up dying jew on a cross and you're right mike it's very difficult for americans because the last time we had a king uh, we sh we dumped all this tea into a harbor and shot at his troops from the woods and we won we got rid of that king for americans what's hard for us to hear is that primary speech coming from the pulpit saying you have a king and his name is Jesus, mm. especially when we're told constantly we're the sovereign voter and we're the sovereign consumer. Yeah, I think part of our problem is we're always trying to make Jesus a means to some other end. And the moment we do that, he will fail to deliver. So if you want your, your best teeth now or whatever it is, again, Jesus is never going to deliver that. All the things that we, we actually need, we get by pursuing Christ. If we pursue things apart from Christ, and try and get them th via him, we, we will just fail. That whole means to an end point, I think, is so valuable because, you know, you look at as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, the disciples are breathing heavier with excitement that, you know, this is New York, New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. This is big time. Our guy is going to be installed as the Messiah. Good grief. We're probably going to sit up there with him, one on the right, one on the left. And Jesus saying, you don't know what you're thinking. I'm picturing Golgotha with, you know, the two people crucified next to me. You're thinking two chairs set up on either side of my throne. Glory, 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 glory. And Jesus the whole time is thinking cross, 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 cross. And when Jesus finally said, no, cross, cross, that's what Jerusalem holds for me. I'm going to be crucified. Peter rebukes him. He's actually mad. Why are you being such a downer? We're going to take over. We're going to be in charge. You're going to be sitting on the throne. Jesus says, no, I have come to die. And the disciples never got that until after Jesus showed up in the upper room, showed him his nails, showed him, explained to them how, first of all, the Son of Man had to be crucified and then enter into his glory. And you still get, even with, you know, they're jockeying for power and authority among themselves, you know, who's going to be the Secretary of State, who's going to be the Secretary of the Interior and everything. And 
they're jockeying for it. And right then, Philip says, okay, now show us the Father. Jesus is a means to an end. Hey, we, we, we really believe now Jesus is the guy. He's the guy who can pull the curtain back and show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip? You don't know who I am. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I am not the way to life. If you follow the principles that I've laid out, if you, if you imitate my example, I am the way. I don't just hold you know, a key that unlocks the door so you can go to God and ask for a resurrection. I am the key. I am the resurrection and the life. You can't go higher than me. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's, again, something that the disciples, are you sure? I mean, we had fried chicken with you yesterday. You're saying there's no one higher than you. We've got to just believe this. That you are the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection. The juxtaposition between our theology of glory, that's to say the message of man, and man's conception of God, and the theology of the cross, the message of the preaching of foolishness of Christ crucified, is really depicted today quite contrastingly in movies. Look at the way that we depict the gods in all of the DC comics or the Marvel series. You know, Thor, Black Panther, Superman, they're invincible. Uh, they destroy. They're glamorous. They have power that exudes everywhere. This is what we expect when God comes. That's what we're expecting is Thor to show up. But what happens? He's a Jew amongst us who's keeping the law and taking all of the symbols of Israel and transferring them onto himself. And it ends up with a bloody, violent death. To as take a, away the sin of the world. As a lamb before his shearers is silent. He didn't lift up a word. Seriously? At what point is he going to throw down his hammer and uh, the whole Sanhedrin, you know, be blown to bits? Not, it doesn't happen. And he gets hammered on yeah. the cross. Yeah. And I think ultimately the problem is we really want a God who will fix our felt needs, but not a God who will take away our sins. We've got to get past this idea that I get to define what peace and satisfaction and fulfillment are because it's cheap exactly if we if we try to pursue satisfaction alone we'll have the wrong definition of it and we will never find it hmm. but if we come to christ we will find we are given the satisfaction we didn't even know existed and i think we can all say we've experienced that i mean that really is not pie in the sky that's real or even the vacuousness of success michael yeah you can be living a cherry life and yet at the same time is this all there is? Yeah, we're still asking that question. Is this all there is? And we know that we're not at peace with God and we're truly not at peace with our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And just as the message, namely a naked Jew hanging on a cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, the method is just as crossly. <laughs> a fellow sinner like me standing up there trying to proclaim in Christ's name the very words of God. That is amazing. But the world doesn't see that as spectacular at all. No, and it's why the, the whole notion that we can somehow impress people into the kingdom is completely <laughs> wrongheaded. Because at some point, they're going to come across a naked guy nailed to a piece of wood. 
and so that the method the medium we use has to reflect the message we have to embody it and that's how god will work it the more we strut and look impressive the less actually we will be pointing people to jesus yeah you walk into a lot of contemporary services where where they will say the message is christ-centered cross-centered and so forth but the feel the vibe is glory 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 hallelujah everything is upbeat everything is happy everything is wow everything is power and where is oh sacred head now wounded where is the feel walking into the church that there is the emotional scale the psychological breadth that you find in the psalms that goes from lament to praise to futility to exaltation, where is that bandwidth? I'm kind of wondering if the macchiato ministry in the narthex <laughs> is dampening the seriousness of what we're about to encounter. That when the king showed up, and there is a king, we laid hands on him, and we maltreated the king. We are the ones, it turns out, are guilty of high treason, and yet he's been condemned for high treason on our behalf. Mm. That's a sobering moment. It's full of fear, but it's commingled with joy. We have to ask ourselves, when we're encountering this message, is the message coming with that kind of force? You know, Marva Dawn said we should be handing out crash helmets when the preacher assumes the pulpit, right? Mm -hmm. And is about to proclaim this gospel. But nowadays, we're handing out the Frappuccino and a message full of fluff, rather than hearing the news that is going to liberate them. It's going mm -hmm. to bring the truth of the reality of this world. We're not Buddhists. We're not denying pain and suffering in this world. What we're talking about is God has actually come and dealt with it in a decisive mm -hmm. way, but it took this for it to happen. Mm -hmm. Going back to what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, part of the reason why we have this foolish message in a foolish medium is because God doesn't want us to put our hope in the wow, in the this is exciting. He knows that's where our heart goes. That's where our heart goes. It's yeah, idols. I don't want you to trust in the wisdom of the speaker or their rhetorical you know, prowess or in the excitement of the worship experience. I want you to trust in the crucified Lord. And... When the message and, and the medium center around that, around Jesus Christ, God gets all the glory mm -hmm. because it wasn't the exciting experience that we conjured up here from below. Mm -hmm. It was God coming down to us through the preaching of Christ and revealing himself to people. And he gets all the credit. Mm -hmm. He gets all the glory. If the kingdom is something I'm building and I could build a big campus and, and I could have maybe 12 satellite campuses or whatever. If that's what the kingdom is, I need to be an entrepreneur. I need to be a business person. I need to be a team leader. This is my ministry. It doesn't make sense that the first thing there is apt to teach, that I can proclaim God's word faithfully, that that's not at the top of the list. But if Christ has established the kingdom in his own blood, if the kingdom is already founded, and if he alone has redeemed, he doesn't need any co-redeemers, if he's accomplished this, then the only thing left, and it is a big task, but the only thing left for me to do is to go out into the part of the world to which he's called me and announce as his ambassador the terms of set the, the peace settlement to announce that the prison doors are open. That's my calling. So preaching is actually 
the only medium that fits this particular gospel, right? Preaching and the sacraments are God's ways of announcing and establishing peace with enemies. You know, we have to remember that this is not our message. This is the king's message that he's put into the mouth of his ambassadors, the herald. One of the things that I think we're assuming right here is that preaching is taking place when the saints gather on Sunday. That's not necessarily the case. I've been to churches where there's been a panel discussion, <laughs> a dialogue, miming, a drama, and more and more today, it's a video. Yeah. But no one's actually spent time with the Holy Scriptures to exegete, to proclaim the gospel that's been given to us from Christ to the apostles and pass that on. Let's at least at first make sure that preaching is taking place in a church. Yeah, I mean, it's sad that you have to even say that, but that is true. I mean, to say that this is happening in evangelical churches is just astonishing. You could imagine liberals, you know, sitting around in a, in a circle sharing their wisdom about the last week in politics. But evangelicals kind of pushing the pulpit to the side is really a shocking situation. Do you see some of that happening in England as well, Sam? I think we're, we're following your lead on that. I don't think we've gone as, as far as that yet. So I don't see many multi-campus, multi-site type churches in the UK. There are, there are certainly some. But I think you're right. We we always will revert back to the visual and the immediate rather than the unseen and, and future in the way that we gather as God's people. That is definitely a huge danger. And I think, again, with the Internet, it can be a great tool in lots of ways. It can be a great snare in others. And when people keep saying to me, who, who should I be listening to? I, I know what they mean by that, but I still want to say to them that the main person you want to be listening to is the guy who's actually praying for you when he's preparing the sermon. Hmm. And wonderful though these other preachers are, none of them have you in mind when they're preparing. Yeah. We've talked about apt to teach. It strikes me one of the things we often overlook as well in those qualifications beyond character is it says hospitable, which again, it doesn't mean you're just someone who could teach and you could theoretically teach by, you know, beaming your, your message across the planet. But hospitable means that you are present with people, that they're, they're walking alongside you and you're walking alongside them. That reinforces the point of the incarnation, doesn't it, Sam? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and being present physically. Paul also here talks about not only the, the counterintuitive character of the message, but of, of the medium, not in lofty speech and wisdom. There's really a sense in Paul's letters, especially in First and Second Corinthians, that he is actually dismantling a lot of his rhetorical ability. Paul is very clearly a rhetorician. He was trained in rhetoric, uh, trained by Gamaliel II, and there was a lot of Greek rhetoric in Jewish training, certainly under Gamaliel. Paul evidences in his Greek style. He's a good rhetorician, but I came not in lofty words of wisdom. He's actually ratcheting it down. He's making an effort to speak plainly, not to sound stupid, not to sound uninformed or unintelligent, but to speak as clearly and plainly as he possibly can so that it won't be his rhetorical skills, but the content of what he's proclaiming that will really persuade people. The two things Paul most frequently asks for prayer for in, the, in his letters are, firstly, that he would be clear, and secondly, that he would be bold. Mm-hmm. 
Those are his two great priorities for preaching. Those are the two things he's most conscious of needing. And we see that reflected in First Corinthians. He said, I was with you in weakness, in fear. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Of our own volition, we, we lack the clarity and the boldness that, that we need. And I, I love that those are the two things Paul aims for and suspect they're what we should be most praying for our own ministry as well. Well, and he contrasts that in Romans sixteen eighteen with smooth talk and flattery. That's what he really wants to avoid. And yet today, again, in a lot of preaching, it's the reverse. There's a lot of smooth talk and flattery and not a lot, hey, it's not about me, it's about Christ. Well, the power is not in the delivery or in the rhetorical flourish. The power is actually in the message of the gospel. And so what he wants to do is pass on what is most certain and true, which is the word of God, which has come from the Son of God, by which the Spirit of God will make application in both law and gospel. Folks, the bottom line here is that we can't find God just anywhere. If we want to find God in wrath, there are lots of places we can find him. But if we want to find him in peace, it has to be on his terms. There's one place. You can't go to the Ganges. You can't go to Mecca. You can't go to a Buddhist shrine. There is one place where you can find God in peace rather than wrath. And that is where you would least expect to find him, on Golgotha, hanging there for you. That's the last place you would expect to find God. But that's where he is. Now, of course, that's not where he is now. He, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory. But he says, through the preaching of the cross, through the preaching of my crucifixion, salvation will come to all people. And Paul could even say to the Galatians, by my preaching, I publicly billboarded Christ crucified. That's where we find him. And then as we'll see in following programs, we see him in the bath baptism. We see him in the Lord's Supper, and we see him in the fellowship of saints as we look at our brothers and sisters who are not only fellow image bearers, but who are, who are fellow heirs with Christ and with us in the inheritance of the saints. Let me just conclude with a quote from J. Gresham Machen in 1932. He said, Christian evangelism does not consist and a man's going about the world and saying, look at me, what a wonderful experience I've had, how happy I am, what wonderful Christian virtues I exhibit. You can all be as good and as happy as I am if you'll just make a complete surrender of your wills in obedience to what I say. That is what many religious workers seem to think that evangelism is. We can preach the gospel, they tell us, by our lives and do not need to preach it by our words, but they are wrong. People are not saved by the exhibition of our glorious Christian virtues. They are not saved by the contagion of our experiences. We cannot be the instruments of God in saving them if we preach to them thus only ourselves. No, we must preach to them the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is only through the gospel which sets him forth that they can be saved. Look forward to being with you again next time on The White Horse Inn. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. For more information about this program, visit us online at whitehorseinn.org. If you sign up as an innkeeper, architect, or reformer, not only will you get a complimentary subscription to our magazine, Modern Reformation, but you'll also get longer editions of every White Horse Inn broadcast. 
To find out how to join one of these support programs, click on the support tab of our website, whitehorseinn.org. You can also give us a call at 1-800-890-7556. That's 1-800-890-7556. We'll see you next time at the White Horse Inn.